You know, I was thinking this week, I don't know how it was with your kids. I know your kids were probably far smarter than my kids and, and more devoted and everything else. But I remember when I used to travel some when they were little. And uh, oftentimes I would travel without them and Beth because they were so young. And so, you know, whether it was on the mission trip to Africa or Bahamas or whether it was into Israel or wherever it might be. I always made a point of this. I always looked forward to come home, right? I knew when I came home, I'd miss those kiddos, and I just couldn't wait till I got home, and they came running to the door, and they were glad to see me and all that stuff. And I always had something, some kind of souvenir, right? I always had some little something that I had to buy to bring back to them. And, and so I started that, and here's what happened. Now, this probably didn't happen to you, but here's what happened to me. I found myself coming home, walking in the door, and the kids come running up to me, grab me and hug me, and I'm in all my glory, all this glory, and they say, what'd you bring us? <laughs> Ever been there, done that? What, what'd you bring us? <laughs> and I said, well, here, here's my answer. Have you ever answered this? Well, me. To which they said, oh, Daddy, that's all we needed. <laughs> Not. No. It's like, What? You didn't bring us something. I said, oh, of course I did. You know, yeah, yeah, I brought it. And now here's what happened. The, the kids have been replaced by the grandkids, right? And now when you see the grandkids, they're like, oh, boy. I went to watch a ball game with one of them yesterday. Surprise, surprise. I say that every Sunday just about. And I go into the, I go and I'm watching them. And as I'm watching them come up there, they're like, oh, gee, daddy. And they hug me. And they say, we need some Gatorade. We're thirsty. We need a hamburger. We're hungry. You know, I'm like, why am I just not enough, Right? I got to think about that this week because honestly, sometimes I wonder how God must feel when we often ask him, hey, Father, what you got for me this week? What you got for me today? And as I thought about this week, I thought more and more about how it seems that less and less with us, God is just enough. It's just enough. Daddy, you're all we need. I always sing it in our songs, but I'm not sure if we really understand that. Even in our worship, it's like, what's in it for me? What did you bring me this week? In the late 1990s, there was a church in England. Um, the, the church in England was struggling a little bit. Now, I'm not sure why they were struggling. There were large crowds in the audience. Um, the music was incredible. They were, Europe was kind of leading the way in this new contemporary style of worship. And so the music was incredible. The instrumentalists were incredible. The band was great. Um, the preacher was excellent. And, and so why was there struggle? I read an article this week where one of their members of the church admitted this. He said, there was just something missing. Not really sure what it was. We weren't sure what it was, but there was just something missing. And he rehearsed the same things I just said. On the surface, everything looked great, but there was something missing. So one day, the pastor had an incredible idea, but a risky idea. Now, one thing I've learned of 43 years of pastoring is many times our best ideas are risky ideas right? And everything takes some risks. Three services next Sunday is a little bit of a risky idea for us. But this pastor decided he was going to act on his risky idea. And you know what he did? How risky is this? He got up and announced that in this, in this revival of incredible music and this display of incredible music, he said, we're going to take away all instruments. No instruments next Sunday. No keyboard, no drums, no guitars, 
just our voices. Well, you can imagine how that was met. The response was, well, I don't know about this. It sounds kind of risky to me, but the pastor felt sure that there was just something missing. Maybe this would help us <clears throat> to figure it out. And so for several weeks, there were no guitars, there were no drums, there were no instruments, there was no sound, there were no lights, there were no clouds, <clears throat> there was no fog machine, there was no curtains, it was just voices. Well, one of the members of the church got on a deep conviction. Happened that he was on the worship team and had not particularly liked the idea of no instruments, but decided that he would listen to what the pastor said, and he took upon himself to go home to contemplate and to think about what was happening. He went into his room, and as he went into his room, his testimony is that God began to speak to his heart, and he wrote down some words, uh, never intending for anything more of these words than to express his heartfelt desire to God. Um, he, he wrote these words. See if they're familiar to you. When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. <laughs> Matt Redman happened to be that young man. And, of course, now this song has been off the charts since the late 90s. Everybody loves Matt Redman's The Heart of Worship. All because he decided to search his heart to see what it really is all about. It's amazing to me that worship is one of the most misunderstood things in the Christian faith today. As a matter of fact, it's amazing to me how many people who are followers of Christ cannot define what real worship is. Some people would say, well, we just worship, have you just had worship? Because we relate to music to worship. Or, or some people will think, well, we're going to have the Lord suffer in a little while. That's worship. And, and, and yet, if I were to ask you to define worship, many times we really would have a struggle. The worship was bad this morning. Why? The worship just wasn't quite on today. Why? I just didn't get anything out of it today. Well, why? What is worship? I think Matt Redman was on to something when he talked about the heart of worship. So today, I want to talk about this subject for a few minutes. The heart of worship, I believe, is the worship of the heart. Now, my wife laughed a little bit at that little saying when I shared it with her yesterday. And I said, don't laugh at my big idea. The heart of worship really is worship of the heart. And we cannot really worship without a worship of the heart. I, I, I came on this this week because, as Jordan was saying earlier, today is a special day. Today is a day on the Christian calendar known as Palm Sunday. I don't know if you understand all that that means and probably don't need to, but, but the short version, Palm Sunday is the, the first day, the initial day of what we call the Holy Week. Maybe you've heard of this week called the Holy Week, culminating, of course, in Easter next Sunday. The Holy Week. It, it's the last week. The, what makes it holy, or the reason we define it as that, it's the last week of Jesus' ministry on the earth. It starts when he rides into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry and culminates with his resurrection on Easter. Now, how important is this week? Think with me just a minute. 
Why is it so important that we would designate the Christian on the Christian calendar for a whole week? Why would we call it Holy Week? Why is it so important? Consider this. The four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and ministry here on the earth. Incredibly important books in our New Testament. All four Gospels record events from this Holy Week, this last week of his time on earth. Now, you, you all probably knew that, but consider this. Matthew, in Luke's gospel, Luke gives, gives roughly, let me, let me get this right. I'm, I don't want to guess on these numbers because I may tell you wrong. Luke gives 20% of his gospel to the last week. Now, that's a lot. 20% of his entire gospel is given to the Holy Week, the last week. Matthew's gospel, 30%. Of the entire gospel is found in this last week. That's a chunk of the book. Wait a minute. Mark's gospel gives 38% of the entire book to this last week. And John, nearly half of his entire book revolves around this last week. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not real smart, but I'm smart enough to know this is a pretty important week in a pretty big deal if nearly half John's gospel, 48% to be precise, is given to this last week. Today, I want to rehearse with you. I want to go with you and take you through the time of this first day, because that's today. This first day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Now, it's not his first time coming to Jerusalem. He's been to Jerusalem many times before. In his three years of ministry, he's been... In fact, we know that he was even in Jerusalem when he was a boy. Remember when he was 12 and he went to Jerusalem and his mom and dad lost him? <laughs> Amen. How does that make you kids feel? Your mom and dad lost you? Well, so did Jesus, you know. That does make you adults feel a little bit better, right? I've left my kids at church before and had to go back and get them. I mean, really, the truth is... It all happens like, well, at 12, he went to Jerusalem. In his years of ministry, he went to Jerusalem many times. But this one... It was a little different. I think there were, there were several who had an idea of the difference, but I'm not sure all of them really understood what was going to happen this time. And so I want to just walk through Luke's account of it. Luke, I, I like Luke because he gives us so much detail. Remember, Luke's a doctor, and the detail he gives us in all of his books is incredible. And he gives us great detail about this entry, this coming to Jerusalem that I think is worthwhile. And here's where I'm going to go with all this, so just so you know, so we can kind of walk our way through it. On his way to Jerusalem, a worship service is going to break out. All right? You, you kind of alluded to it a minute ago. A worship service is going to break out. And so what I want to do is kind of see what we can learn from this worship service that broke out because it was very spontaneous I think it was very sincere for the most part and it was very powerful and important and so what do we learn what can we learn let's don't just be in awe of the fact that he came probably a large portion of you who came this morning already know what this entry is like but what do we learn about the heart of worship well, Luke's gospel, it's in chapter 19. We're going to pick up reading with verse number 28. Luke chapter 19, verse number 28. It says, <clears throat> When he had said these things, now that he is Jesus, we understand that, right? When he had said these things, what, what he said? He had been doing a teaching. In fact, let me just back up a little bit. It says, When he said these things, he went 
on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Let's, let's set it. Let, let's set the, the tone for you. He's been down in Jericho, all right? He's been in Jericho. Actually, he's been in the Galilee area, which is his, one of his favorite places to be. It was a safe area. It was a calm area. He could get away from the, 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 the threat of the religious leaders there. He, the, the Roman presence was not as strong. So he loved being in the Galilee. But now he's made his way from the Galilee down to what's called the Jordan River Valley. He follows the Jordan River Valley to the city of Jericho. Remember, that's where the walls came tumbling down. Jericho. And, and so he's in Jericho, and it's, in fact, he's in Jericho that he meets a, a little guy, a wee little man. You remember him? Zacchaeus, right? We all know Zacchaeus, and he's climbing up a tree. Why? Because crowds of people have now started following this Jesus, and, and they're amazed at what's happening. And so this little Zacchaeus is short. And, you know, think about a parade, and think about layers at the parade, and he can't see, so he climbs up a tree, and, you know, the story. And then, then Jesus begins to tell some stories and tell some parables and do some teaching. So after he said these things, he went on ahead. It's time to leave Jericho. It's time to leave the Galilee. And he went up. He, no, no, go back to the next verse just a minute. He, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, you always go up to Jerusalem. Just a little teaching thing, all right? I don't know if this fascinates you, but it fascinates me. You know, we talk about going up to Atlanta. We would talk about going down to Miami, right? Because we talk directionally. To them, they're not talking directionally. They're talking about literally up. To go from Jericho, any place you go in Israel is always up to Jerusalem. It's 2,500 feet above sea level. It's surrounded by mountains. And by the way, Jericho is at the north end of the Dead Sea, the lowest spot on earth at 1,300 feet below sea level. So in about 10 miles, you're moving from maybe 15 miles, you're moving from 1,300 feet below to 2,500 feet above. So it is literally, he's going up. It's a treacherous path. And we know he gets close to the city because as he goes up to Jerusalem, Luke adds, As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, he said, and bring it. Now, again, just a little geography. As he comes up from Jericho, he immediately comes to the city, the little town, the little village really called Bethphage. When he gets there, he says, Now, I'm going to Bethany. You go ahead and find a colt, a, a donkey, and bring it. And so he arrives at Bethany. He says to these men, Find it, untie it, and bring it. Look at the next verse. I love this. He says, If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say this. The Lord needs it. And that's it. Yep, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he said or as he told them. So you get the picture. They're sending for the donkey. They're bringing it to the Lord. And as they were untying the young donkey, the people said, Why are you untying the donkey? Verse 34, The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus after throwing their clothes on the donkey. They helped Jesus get on it. He was going along. They were spreading their clothes on the road. Now, here's what I want to stop and say just a minute. I want you to see this about Jesus. Don't miss this. Jesus is in Jericho. Everything is safe. 
He's going to Jerusalem against the counsel of all of his friends. Everybody knows the Sanhedrin is out for him. The Romans think he's a zealot that needs to be put out. Many people think that somehow the, the people arrested Jesus and forced him to the cross. Listen, watch this carefully. Jesus is in complete control of the situation. All right? That's what I want you to see here. He's in complete control of the situation. He's not going because somebody's forcing him. He's not going blindly. He's got the whole thing planned. He's in complete control. He's going there for one reason. Watch this. He's not going there to try to avoid death. He's going there with death in mind. Now, that's so critical. I know it seems so simple, but in today's society, in today's world, there are so many people who are trying to talk about how the Jews killed him or the Romans killed him or, or whoever killed him. Watch this. He's going with the express purpose of dying. It's all part of the plan. And he's engaged in this plan. And this plan is important. And he's put it together. Now, watch this. He's put together the colt or the, the, the donkey Never been written, by the way. I, I don't have to. There's so much here. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bobble around. I know. There's so much here. He, why a colt? Why a donkey? Well, for one thing, it was spoken of by the prophets. He's fulfilling prophecy. But the point I want to make is this. Without getting too detailed and boring you, Steph. I don't want to bore you, Steph. He's got this plan. And as he goes down, this plan begins to unfold. And part of this plan is that the people are going to begin to come. Look what happens in the next verse. It says, verse 34, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse, what are we on, 37? Verse 37, Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Now there's the worship service that breaks out. Jesus is in, Be in Bethany. He's ready to come into the city. I can just see it. I'm sorry if I'm just pausing here. Toby, you know what I'm talking about. You can see it, can't you? I mean, we've walked down this, I walked down this path many times, and I've been there, and I've seen it. It's just all coming back to me right now. He crosses over the Mount of Olives in from, down, down from Bethany. He gets on the donkey. He's beginning to ride toward the city. It's only about two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem, just across the Kidron Valley. And so they're in it, and they're riding. He's on the donkey, and people begin to come. And as the people begin to come, they begin... Another gospel says to lay down palm branches. That's the name that we get. And they begin to cry out. And they begin to praise him. They begin to sing to him an old psalm. Baruch haba Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they begin to praise him. And Luke adds that it's loud. You know why that's important? I think that's really important for this reason. I've stood on the other side of the city. Listen to this. I stood on the other side of the city, and I've heard voices from the Kidron Valley. The sound carries in that arena. So I say that to say, people heard it. This, it maybe it started off with two, maybe three, maybe four, maybe a dozen. But as they began to praise loudly, it was heard over the whole city. What's happening? There's a commotion, and the crowd begins to build, and, and it all seems to be spontaneous. Now, let me just stop here. Here's the first thing I learned about worship. Watch this. Critically important. You can plan it, but you can't orchestrate it. You can plan worship, but you can't orchestrate it. 
There was no orchestration of the events. Jesus planned the events very carefully. Get me a donkey, this kind of donkey. Get it from here. Bring it here. I'm going to ride down it. It wasn't because he was tired. There was some significance there. He had a plan. But watch this. The plan was orchestrated as the people began to call out their true praise to God. And they began to cry out to him. Blessed is he who comes. Blessed is the king, Luke says, who comes in the name of the Lord. And suddenly this worship service, this worship event, breaks loose. Now, think about that just a minute. <clears throat> is it wrong to plan worship? No. Can I just tell you that sometimes we work hard on a plan for this. We work hard to plan the music. We work hard. These guys work hard to practice the music. They don't just get up here on Sunday and say, Oh, what if we do this? You know? No, it's well thought out, it's well planned, it's well practiced, it's well done, it's well put together. We can plan it. You know, I had to plan what to say this morning. I, I told Beth the first of the week, I'm so glad for my wife. She's so more spiritual than I am. I, I told her Monday, I said, I, you know, I need to start thinking about what I'm going to preach this Sunday. Usually it's mapped out months in advance, but on these campus pastor days, not. So I said, I got to think about what I'm going to preach. And she looked at me and she said, well, it is Palm Sunday. Like, dummy, you know. She didn't say that. Uh, yeah, it's planned. Planning is okay, but watch this. We can plan it, but we can't orchestrate it. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. And you can't orchestrate people's hearts. Now, I'm, I'll come back to that thought, but let me move on. He's coming into the city. The crowd has burst into this, this voluminous praise. Everybody is excited. Everybody is so happy. They say, verse 38, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 39, watch this. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. <laughs> I just, you know what? I just love the scriptures. They're just so, so real. First of all, you have Christ, right? You have the Christ who's in complete control. He's coming into the city to die for the people. You have the crowd, and the crowd is there, and they're so excited, and they're praising God. And then you have the critics. <clears throat> Hello. <laughs> I've not been in any, many church worship experiences where there's not critics. Can I get an amen? No, nobody wants to amen there. It's kind of quiet right there. But here's the critics. They say, Lord, get your crowd under control. What are your people doing? Tell them to be quiet. Now, here's my guess. Not even Dr. Luke gives us this detail, but here's my guess as to what happened. My guess is the Pharisees. Remember who they are? They're the religious leaders. They're the religious elite. They're the PhDs. They're the THDs. They're the doctors of law, and they are the all-knowing ones. And they say, I just got a feeling, maybe they're saying something like this. This is not the place to worship. The place is in the temple of God. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people came to me when I was in the skating rink and said, this is not the place to worship. It is the church of God, right? And I, we are the church of God. We're just meeting in a borrowed building here, right? Or maybe they weren't doing it the right way. Huh. You don't worship God by throwing palm branches down. You, you go to the temple and you go up the steps and you go through the prayers in this order. And you don't do it this way. I, I'm not sure what all the criticism was about, but I can promise you there are always critics to worship. And, and, and so I think it's important to know that 
this because you have to be careful that you don't become one of those critics and think, well, that's just not the way you do it. Well, it's not the way you do it, but it doesn't mean it's not the way to do it. Am I making sense at all? You got to be careful about criticism of the place. I mean, I know we're just kind of a barn here ourselves, but you know, here's the problem. So many times when we think of worship, we think of the externals rather than the internals. I think their problem was they were looking at all the externals and not at the internal of the people's hearts. Externally, it was not the right place. You know, so many times externally we define worship as coming into a building that's beautifully set. Everything is in order and everything is beautiful and we have this beautiful sanctuary. Nothing wrong with those. I've been in some incredible cathedrals and I've been in some incredible church buildings and they're beautiful. But that does not define our worship. Or sometimes it's defined by how big the crowd is. You know? Some people are going to say, well, worship service wasn't great today because there was only, well, they're implying there's only a few of us there. Well, listen, where two or three are gathered together, Jesus said in my name, you know? I told somebody the other day, I'm going to preach the same whether there's five or 5,000. It doesn't matter to me because it's not about how many people, it's not about how good the music is. Well, the music just stunk today. Well, then, bless your heart, pick up a guitar, learn how to play it, and come do it yourself, you know? <laughs> All right, I got to really be careful here. <laughs> no, the music's terrible, you know. Or the preacher, where did he get a degree? Or does he have a degree? Or if he doesn't, he should. Or if he does, he should probably have it taken from him, you know. Hang on. Can I just be up front with you guys? You know why I appreciate you guys showing up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? Because I know all you got to do is go online and you can find preachers way better than me. You can find teachers way better than me. But you see, that's not why we gather. As a matter of fact, look at the next statement, and this may really unravel you. When the Pharisees said this about the disciples, look what Jesus answered. Verse 40, he answered, I tell you that if they were to keep silent, that is the people, if I tell them like you suggested, just keep quiet, behave, Get in line. Don't stop this. If I did that, the stones would cry out. The stones would cry out. Now, that just bothers me. Here's why. I'm just a step higher than a stone. If I don't worship him, the stones. You know what it really says to me? It says worship's really not about me. It's really not about me. You, you've missed it, guys. If, if I told them to stop, it's really not about them. It's really not about the crowd. It's really not about the scene they're causing. It's really not about how loud they are. It's not about the songs they're singing. It's their heart. Because what it's about is me. And if they stop, the rocks will cry out. Because it's about him. Listen, guys, the sooner we get that, the better we're going to understand worship. It's not about me. It's not about what's in it for me. You see, the problem is much of our worship today is like my kids. Daddy, we're so glad you're here. What's in it for me? Father, you want to be more age-appropriate. Father, we're so glad to be in your house today and sing songs about you. Now, what's in it for me? 
What am I going to get out of it? I'm not trying to be hard. I'm trying to teach us a lesson that we understand that true worship is not what's in it for me moment. It's all about him. Now, let's read on. I've got to hurry. I'm, I'm running out of time. Watch this. The next verse says, As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it. This is the second time, I think, the second time we see Jesus weep. You remember? We're, we're, I, we, I mean, he may have wept many times. I don't know. He, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. You remember his friend? When he realized that Lazarus had died, he wept. And I'm wondering if he's not, in part, giving us freedom to weep and to mourn. The Apostle Paul said that we who are followers of Christ should grieve, but not as those who have no hope. And now we might say he wept in the garden, but I'm not sure if that was a weeping or if that was sweat coming from the brow of his head, the blood that came from the brow. I'm not sure, but I know here he wept when he saw the city. I've been down that path many times, and when you cross the Mount of Olives and you come toward Jerusalem and you walk down that path, the path winds around. It's a paved road now. It wasn't then. But as you walk down that road and follow that path, all along the way, Jerusalem is framed beautifully. The old city wall and the Temple Mount that stood above everything. And the place that had become the city of God, the place for his people to dwell. And when he saw it, he wept. Why did he weep? He cared for them, no doubt. He cared about the fact that these were his people. Maybe he cared about the fact that the city was about to be destroyed. You remember what he told them? He told the religious leaders, he said, you're, about, you're all about this temple, but I'm telling you that not one stone is going to be left upon another. What was he talking about? He's talking about the Roman invasion, right, that took place 60, 66 A.D., just years after his death. He knew that. He said, you've got to understand. Maybe, he was, maybe it was because, and I, I think this is at least one thing, maybe it was because the people completely misunderstood what was going on. They completely missed it. Let me read it for you. Look on. It says, He wept for the city, verse 41. Then verse 42 says, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when, you're in when your enemies will build a barricade around you. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Romans. He's talking about Titus. He's talking about what's going to happen in just a very few years. We'll build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children, your children among you to the ground, and they'll not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. What? You did not recognize the time when God visited you. 
wait a minute. I thought that's what we're I thought that's what we're worshiping. I thought that's what brought the worship. Surely they were worshiping because God had come. It's not what Luke said. Did you read it carefully? Luke said they began to cry out to him loudly because of the miracles they had seen. Did you catch that? Because of the miracles that they had seen. Look at verse 37 one more time. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Wait a minute. This crowd was so diverse. There were some in the crowd who were watchers. They came. Maybe we'll see a miracle. We heard about the miracles he did in the Galilee. We heard about the miracles he did at Jericho. Maybe we'll see another one. And so the watchers came to see what was going on. Maybe something's going to happen. Do you see what is the underlying thought of that? Maybe there's something in this for me. And then they're the curious. I wonder about this guy. I've heard about him. I've heard that he fed 5,000 plus in the Galilee. I heard that his friend Lazarus was dead. And I think I want to come see him. And there were some curious in the crowd. And there were some, frankly, who I think probably didn't really want to be there. I know how crowds work. In every crowd, somebody's there, and after a few minutes, they're saying, well, this ain't all it's cracked up to me. This is just a dude riding a donkey. I got other things to do. I thought about our crowds because today when we churches gather for worship, we got the same groups. We got some who are just curious. And if you're curious here today and you came because you're curious, I'm glad you did. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. It's a good thing to be curious about what God is and is doing, and that, that's a good thing. There are some who are just come to watch, you know. I ain't getting involved. I ain't getting engaged. I'm just going to watch, you know, just going to watch. Nothing else. Don't get me involved. There are some probably who don't want to be here, and right now you're saying, I wish you would just be quiet so we can go home, <laughs> sing our last song, and get out of here. And then there are some who were true worshipers. There were some who came and were praising him because they knew him to be God. But here's the convicting thing I want to leave you with. Most didn't even understand what was happening. That's what he said. That's not, what I, that's not my interpretation. That's what he said. You didn't even see that God was in your midst you didn't even see I wonder how many Sundays do I walk out of a worship experience and fail to see that God's right here in our midst because I'm looking at ex externals music sermon facilities crowd who's there Who's playing games instead of their Bible on their app, their TV, their phone? All those things. Wrong kind of donuts. Didn't even have my favorite kind. I miss it. You know what I tell my, my folks in the Bahamas every year? Kim knows. 
Yeah, she's just standing down there. Every year I tell our folks in the Bahamas, here's your number one assignment every day while we're on mission. Your number one assignment is to look to see where God is at work among us today. Because if you're not careful, you'll miss it. You won't see it. We get so busy with life, we get so distracted, you'll miss it. I'm going to say the same thing to us. Be careful. If you're not careful, you'll get so distracted by life and so involved with all of the externals, you'll miss God at work. And you'll miss the heart of worship. Because the worship, the heart of worship is the worship from your heart. So the last question I want to ask you is this. Are you a watcher or a worshiper? Are you a watcher? Are you watching? <laughs> or are you worshiping? The big difference. Huge difference. I'm telling you, when you step from watching to worshiping, everything changes in your heart. And suddenly, how you measure worship changes as well. Well, let me close with this, and I really am closing with this. I jotted up here. Give me that next slide, if you would, guys. Um, I, I jotted a few thoughts about how we do that. Okay, it, okay, it's one thing to say all this I've told you, but how do we do it? Let me give you four thoughts, okay, that just ran across my mind. First of all, understand that worship starts before you enter. Worship starts before you ever enter the building. Worship begins. You know who, when I really saw that come to light, and I hate to keep talking about it, but it's just fresh on my mind. Um, but I remember the first time I went to the teaching steps in Jerusalem. They're called the teaching steps. It's on the east side of the, the temple, and they're steps that lead up to the temple. The temple was always elevated, and the steps that lead up to the temple, and they were recently uncovered, and, and you can walk on them now, and they date back to the time of Christ. And, and, and what's, what, here's what struck me about those steps. It was, first of all, that Jesus had likely touched some of these same steps, yes. But for a teaching moment, I noticed that the steps were uneven and anything but consistent. Our steps are consistent, right? Whatever the width and length, it's usually the same, right, the depth, because we can go up or down our steps without even looking for the most part. These steps were anything but consistent. One step was this wide, one step was this wide. One step was this tall, one step was this tall. And I thought, I ah, just, you know, early architecture. They didn't know how to build steps evenly. They just got uneven stones, you know. And then I looked around me at these gargantuan several ton stones that they moved perfectly into place and cut perfectly into place. And I'm like, well, no, that's not it. So when I asked about it, here's what I was told. They did that intentionally so that when an Israeli enters into the temple, you have to come with a bowed head, paying careful attention to how you come. Aha moment for Eddie. Worship starts before you enter. Thus, honestly, I'll try very hard to let my Sabbath begin on Saturday night. I'm not saying that should be for everybody. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying for me, it starts on Saturday night. I start getting ready on Saturday night. Second thing, I wish I could talk more about that. Second thing, center your heart before you enter. That's the idea of the steps. I get my heart right before I get to the temple for the Jew. 
for me, I make sure my heart is right before God before I ever enter into the experience of worship. I make sure that my heart is in tune. It tuned my heart. It was a great song, great old hymn. Do y'all remember the song, old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? Tune my heart to sing your praise. Tune my heart, Lord. Center my heart. Third, and this is going to blow you away. I think it's important. Arrive early. Arrive early. Most of us stumble into a worship experience having struggled with everything we know from getting the cereal put together to getting dressed to getting our hair done to whatever Come early enough to get your mind prepared for a worship experience. And then finally, make the most of the first moments. Don't let it slip. Know that you are where you are to worship the God of heaven. Not for me, but for him. Wow. So after this teaching moment and Jesus rides into Jerusalem, for the next five, six days, he's going to be engaged in ministry. One of those nights, whether you think it's Wednesday night or Thursday night, we're not debating that today. One of those nights, Jesus gathered with his disciples for the last time. As he gathered them together, they ate the Passover meal together, which was a custom that we don't have time to talk about now. And when they finished celebrating the Old Covenant, Jesus instituted a new celebration or a new covenant. And Jesus said to the people, I got something new for you, something different. A new covenant I'm entering into you, and we're sealing it with my blood. And he instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper, communion, where we gather together as, a, as the church and as we take elements and these elements remind us of our Lord. We take bread, and we break the bread. It's, it's actually crackers for us, but we take the, the bread, and he took the bread, and when he broke it, he said, this is my body, broken for you. And he instituted this new remembrance. He said, as often as you eat it, remember me. And then he took the cup, and so we also take a cup, we take a juice, and we put it to here for us to take because it represents to us his blood. There's nothing magical. I just want you all to know, uh, we, we just bought this from the store. Okay? Y'all good? We just bought it from the store. It's not holy, if you will, but it represents something incredible. It represents something way too incredible for us to ever manufacture on our own. It is his body. His body beaten and bruised for us and his blood shed to atone for our sins, to reconcile me to God, save me from hell and usher me into heaven and to seal a covenant a new covenant based upon grace. That's why this is an incredible moment. First done on Holy Week. Now, 2,000 years later, we're going to do it again. <laughs> now, don't be afraid of it. 
If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to join with us. If you're a follower of Christ, you're, you're invited to come and to take the bread and to take the cup. We're going to eat it and drink it together. Again, I said it's just bread and juice. You don't have to fear. You know, it's not something we put out there that you're wondering what you're eating. You don't have to be afraid of it. But know what you're doing. <laughs> That's the thing that stirred me about the passage we just read. He said all of this, they didn't even know what they were doing. That's the sad thing. I don't want us to not know what we're doing. So forgive me if I go a little long today. I just want us to know what we're doing. And to have a freedom to worship God and know there's nothing in it for me. It's not about me. It's all about you. It can be planned, but it can't be orchestrated. And when I put myself aside and you're glorified, worship has occurred because the heart of worship is worship from the heart. Pray with me, would you? Every head bowed, every eye closed.